Happy Feast Day of Our Lady of Guadalupe, everyone. Sticking with the series that we had last on the biblical foundation of Mary, now we're going to talk about all the historical apparitions of Mary. And I'll give a brief testimony as well in my relationship with her. So here we go again, talking about your mama. So before we actually get into uh, talking about the historical apparitions of Mary, first I want to just maybe take this opportunity to actually teach on what apparitions are and why God uses them and what the church actually goes through in order to confirm uh, these apparitions that happen. So what is an apparition? Essentially, all it is is somebody from heaven appearing here on earth. And if you look in the Bible, it has appeared all the way throughout the entire Bible. So in the Old Testament, you saw angels appearing quite often as messengers of God. Uh, Also, you see angels appearing in the New Testament to Joseph and Mary. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain uh, right before Peter, James, and John, and he was revealing his glory to them, you saw Moses and Elijah next to him talking and conversing. And that's also kind of a foreshadowing of Jesus's resurrection with all the saints around him, right? So we as human beings, we are not angels. When we are resurrected, we are saints. We have a human body and that the second uh, resur- at the resurrection of our bodies, our bodies will be there, but our spirits and our souls are resurrected uh, at the time of our initial judgment. Um, and then uh, Jesus, he appeared to Saul. He also appeared to um, his apostles and to the women and to 500. He appeared to the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he also You saw when the first uh, martyr, Deacon Stephen, he saw a vision of the heavens open and Christ at the right hand of the Father um, as he was being martyred. And so I want to go through on what the church actually teaches. So an apparition essentially is categorized as a private revelation in the church. And I want to distinguish what a private revelation is versus public or divine revelation, right? So private revelation is different from public revelation in the sense that public revelation comes to us from God through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. So that is valid for all eternity, for all time, and meant for all. It is ceased with the death of the last apostle. So when we talk about sacred tradition and sacred scripture, that is divine truths revealed by God. Um, and that has ended at the last apostle. So Jesus was the fulfillment of the, of the revelation of God to his people. And so private revelation has, mess- there, there are such messages that do not belong to the deposit of faith given to the apostles. And the belief in these private revelations are not required, even the ones that are approved after a vigorous and very detailed investigation by the church. So the catechism, this is a quote talking about private private revelations. This is what it says. Throughout the ages, there have been so-called private revelations, some of which have been recognized by the authority of the church. They do not belong, however, to the deposit of faith. It is not their role to improve or complete Christ's definitive revelation, but to help live more fully by it in a certain period of history. Guided by the magisterium of the church, the sensum fidelium knows how to discern and welcome in these revelations whatever constitutes an authentic call of Christ or his saints to the church. End quote. And then also Pope Benedict, the Pope uh, just before uh, Pope Francis, in his apostolic exhortation, Verbum Domini, he says this, 
The value of private revelations is essentially different from the one public revelation. The latter demands faith. Private revelation is an aid to this faith, and it demonstrates its credibility precisely because it refers back to the one public revelation. A private revelation can introduce new emphases, give rise to new forms of piety, or deepen older ones. It can have a certain prophetic character and can be a valuable aid for better understanding and living the gospel at a certain time. Consequently, it should not be tr- treated lightly. It is a help which is proffered, but, is u- but its use is not obligatory. End quote. And so, while it is necessary to establish the proper role of miraculous phenomena as leading the faithful to Christ, it would be a mistake to underestimate and devalue the importance of miracles in the life and history of the church, because as we have seen, the earliest Christians, to follow, they, they were inspired by these. Um, so, while it is necessary to establish the proper role of miraculous phenomena as leading the faithful to Christ, it would be a mistake to underestimate and devalue the importance of miracles in the life and history of the church, because as we know, the earliest Christians, they were inspired by these miracles to follow Christ, and they have bolstered the faith of believers ever since the beginning of the church. And later, I think it's going to be really comforting for us faithful on the amount and the extent of investigation that the church does to approve a revelation or a uh, private revelation or an apparition, and also on what the saints have said throughout history about uh, testing the spirits, just like scripture says, test the spirits and hold to what is true and hold to what is good. So uh, the church goes through that. But first, let's dive into on why would God work through private revelations like this? So as we see in scripture, God has always used signs and wonders to help plant, grow, and protect the seeds of faith in believers. So like we mentioned earlier, Paul, he had a vision of Christ, which was necessary to him to be set path, to be set on this path to Christianity and to be probably the best uh, evangelist of the entire Christian history, right? So, and, the, and also... In the year 312, when Christianity and the church was under really intense persecution, especially under the Roman Empire, um, it was actually in 312 that the Roman Emperor Constantine, he actually legalized Christianity. Actually, people, some, a lot of people get this mistaken as if like Constant, Constantine uh, created the Catholic Church or something. It, he didn't even become Christian until his deathbed, but he legalized Christianity. He said that it should no longer be persecuted. He should be tolerated, Christianity in 312. And that was after witnessing a miraculous uh, symbol of Christ in the sky, which was IHS, which is a symbol of the name Jesus Christ. And also... This has always been um, able to strengthen the faith of the people by private revelations, and many conversions can be traced to their influence. So, and actually, the very fact of conversion is a part of declaring a phenomena worth worthy of belief. So we'll get into that later. So uh, actually, the feast day that we celebrate today, uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, which I'll get into a little bit later. There was 9 million baptisms in eight years. So 3,000 plus baptisms every single day for eight straight years that converted an entire uh, city in Mexico. But that's just one thing that is uh, used by the church in order to test it or to um, determine or declare how worthy of belief an apparition is, is the fruit of it, right? So are there conversions happening? 
and also some of the most beautiful or really profound places of worship in the entire world are actual direct results from a request made by Mary during her apparition. So oftentimes she would request that there's a church built in honor of her son. So four of the 12 largest church buildings in the entire world were built because of a request made by Mary. And we, when we look in scripture too, God used miracles, signs, and wonders all the time to reveal the truth of himself. Especially in the New Testament, Jesus, he would perform miracles, signs, and wonders, miraculous healings would take place. One, to reveal himself as the Messiah, but two, because it would encourage people, it would encourage, it would draw people to himself and encourage their faith. So he went and preached, but everything was followed up by the power of the words that he was speaking. So the signs and wonders performed by Jesus would express what his words were saying, or in other words, it would legitimize what Jesus was saying. So now let's briefly talk about how the church actually investigates each of these private revelations. So it can be really summarized, and there's a a document out there for local bishops to follow when a private revelation is uh, said to have happened, and this is the process they go through. First step is promptly gather the details of the case and be attentive to its development. The second step is if the Christian faithful seek it, allow and disseminate the devotion, providing that no negative aspects of the case have been found. Step number three is in serious matters, take action as necessary. And in step number four, in cases that may present cause for concern but not a clear answer, do not intervene but remain attentive to its development. And there's also really three categories of judgment of the supernatural character of each apparition that they can fall into, that these apparitions can fall into. So the first one is that it's not worthy of belief. So after investigation, they actually conclude that this was not a legitimate or a confirmed apparition that was worthy of belief. Number two is that it is worthy of belief. So they, after they've gone through their entire investigative process, that they confirm that this is supernatural and it did actually happen. And the third possible category is that it's kind of like in this wait and see type of stance where it is not established that there is something uh, supernatural that occurred in this apparition. So a lot of the apparitions fall into this category where the committee uh, cannot come to a definitive conclusion. So an apparition with such a designation might or might not be of supernatural origin. There's really no proof of the phenomenon originating from anything but natural causes, um, but it has none of the negative criteria are fulfilled and the supernatural cause is not ruled out. So it's still really under investigation. So now actually getting into the... Uh, there's negative criteria. So this is the criteria that uh, they look for in, in order to put in that first bucket of saying it's not worthy of belief. And the criteria includes that there's uh, one, glaring errors in the, in the facts. Number two is that there's doctrinal errors attributed to God or Mary. Number three is that there's a pursuit of financial gain. Number four is that there's gravely immoral acts committed by the visionary. And number five is that there's psychological disorders or tendencies in the visionary. In contrasting that with the positive criteria, so criteria that would put it in the bucket of worthy of belief, there's four main things. Is one, that there must be moral certainty or at least probability that something miraculous had occurred. So the commission may interview the visionaries, call other witnesses, and visit the sites of the events. Uh, number two is that the subjects whose claims to have had the apparition must be mentally sound, honest, sincere, of upright conduct, obedient to ecclesiastical authorities. 
And you even see that characteristic being confirmed by Jesus himself and his apparitions to St. Faustino, who he revealed the Divine Mercy Chaplet to, and we'll talk about that in a little bit too. And But also, the, uh, the person is able to return to the normal practices of the faith, such as participation in communal worship, reception of the sacraments, etc. Number three is that the revelations must be theologically acceptable, morally sound, and free from error. Number four is that the apparition must result in positive spiritual assets that endure. So, uh, for example, prayer, conversion, increase of virtue, and this conversion piece, as we mentioned before, and we'll talk about again in a little bit, Our Lady of Guadalupe, 9 million baptisms in 8 years. So now that we just learned all that, there's clearly a very detailed process, and this is also an extremely long process. It takes years and years and years, usually, for a local bishop to actually confirm a miracle was legitimate. And so just to contextualize this as well, um, to give us some numbers, Marian apparitions, so where apparitions of Mary appeared, there's 2,500 reported Marian apparitions, but those are only people that are actually reporting these Marian apparitions to like actual authority to investigate, to be open to investigation in order for someone to confirm that this happened. I would say there's probably millions of cases of people having apparitions or at least an encounter with Mary in some fashion, because I know people and my, including myself that have had an encounter with Mary. Um, but I, obviously not going to report it to the authorities because it wasn't like an open vision. It wasn't so profound. But um, so 25 have been reported, 2,500 have been reported, and 28 apparitions were judged positively by local bishops. So a slim number. And uh, the, like we mentioned earlier, a lot of those were never confirmed to say that they weren't worthy of belief, but that they're in this kind of standstill state that it seems like there's natural causes, but we can't confirm that there wasn't supernatural phenomenon that happened. And so of those 28, 17 have been uh, received some form of Vatican recognition. And one priest at the church, uh, he reported that the church actually recognizes 15 apparitions. Um, and But there's also another Marian expert that says that there's only nine. Um, so there is no formal process established in canon law for recognition of apparitions by the Vatican. So the interpretation of the signs of recognition by different scholars results in a variation of these numbers that have been approved by the Vatican. But as we have seen, 28 of the apparitions were judged positively by the local bishops. And that's uh, what the process goes through is through the local bishop. And so obviously the church does not take apparitions lightly, and that should um, give us a lot of comfort as Christian faithful. So the Catholic Church for 2,000 years has embraced these miracles that happen, and it doesn't consider them as just mere remains of a superstitious, less scientific past. It uh, should be reassuring that the church does not endorse everything that might seem to be miraculous at first, uh, but instead they actually perform a very serious investigation when necessary to provide the appropriate pastoral care protecting us, the faithful, from claims that are unworthy of belief or that could endanger our souls. Um, and also it should comfort us in knowing that we are not obligated by our faith to embrace anything related to private revelation, right? So we're only required to to, to believe with, um, what has been divinely revealed. And so uh, we are not obligated by our faith to embrace anything related to private revelations, even the f most famous approved examples that feature canonized visionaries and feast days in our church. It is up to us as the faithful to decide whether engaging with approved private revelation will benefit our spiritual life.
And even the saints themselves, particularly even the mystics themselves, these saints who had these special graces given to them and apparitions, revelations, are people with graces um, that were in pure like ecstasy states, states where they would like levitate at mass or bilocate like St. Padre Pio or uh, see Jesus all the time or see Mary all the time um, and all of these things, even they, they caution um, them. So I want to give two examples. So one is St. John of the Cross. So he's one of the greatest uh, mystics of the history of the church. He even said that these uh, private revelations, they can lead to fanaticism or an apocalyptic view of current world events. And so he taught that union with God could be attained through the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, not through visions or miraculous phenomena. So such things are not part of the core of the spiritual life. So St. John even goes so far as to suggest that if a vision does come, the recipient should at first not accept the occurrence and begin to assess the veracity of the vision only if it comes again. And he says that faith holds on without seeing proof. Those who want visions want to see, not to believe without seeing. And St. Teresa of Avila, an awesome, another mystic uh, of the Catholic Church, she acknowledges that mystical experiences can be a great blessing when they are genuine and are appropriate, appropriately discerned, but cautions us against seeking them out. And this is a quote from her. She says, I will only warn you that when you learn or hear that God is granting souls these graces, you must never beg or desire him to lead you by this road, even if you think it is a very good one. These are not These are certain reasons why such a course is not wise. It is true that to have these favors must be a very great help toward attaining a high degree of perfection in the virtues. But one who has attained the virtues at the cost of his own work has earned much more merit. End quote. And so the church has always protected the faithful and it warns against too much uh, seeking out these signs, right? So even Jesus says, you seek this sign, but a sign will not be given this, this perverse generation, right? But the Lord does provide these signs sometimes to strengthen our faith, right? Just like we saw with Jesus, he also performs miracles in order to strengthen our faith, but not merely that we're seeking them out in order for us to have faith. He wants us to have faith in him, him to live out these virtues. So before we even get into marrying apparitions, I just wanted to share a few of apparitions of Jesus. So Jesus appeared four times between 1673 and 1675 to St. Margaret Mary in France, and he showed her his heart to demonstrate the greatness of his love and asked her to spread the devotion. So that's where we get the sacred heart image from. And in the early 1900s, Jesus appeared to St. Faustina Kowalska, and there's an entire book called The Diary, Divine Mercy in My Soul, and I do have the diary. It's huge. So I recommend everyone buying it, though. And anytime Jesus is speaking, the words are bolded, so you can see where Jesus speaks throughout there. But this Polish nun reported several encounters with Jesus, and um, there's three main themes of the devotion that are to ask for and obtain the mercy of God. To, and to trust in Christ's abundant mercy and to show mercy. So Faustina worked with an artist um, to depict our Lord with rays of light emanating from his heart in red and white, which he said symbolized the blood and water um, pierced from, that came from his heart, which uh, in the Gospel of John is described in John 19.34. Um, and that's why we're, that's where we get the Divine Mercy Chaplet from as well. So I try to play, pray that at the Divine Mercy Hour every day at 3 p.m. when Jesus died on the cross for us. And 
and some other private revelations that have occurred in history. Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, she did not have an open vision. So this is actually called the locution where it's a manifestation, but it's not does not include a visual manifestation. And she was inspired for her charitable work uh, that was received on September 10th of 1946. And Jesus told her that I that I cannot go alone. Christ revealed his pain at the neglect of the poor, how much he suffered for them, and how much he wanted their love. So St. Teresa was to establish a religious community, which would be known as now the Missionaries of Charity, and that was dedicated to the service of the poorest of the poor. And uh, another uh, one that had a revelation would be Mother Eugenia, and um, she lived in the, all the way till 1990. She was an Italian nun and mystic known for social work on the Ivory Coast. She said uh, that received messages from God the Father. So this is actually one of the only mystics in the entire church history where that there was a supernatural message from God the Father. So now a brief overview of Marian apparitions. So as we talked about earlier, 25 reported, 2,500 reported Marian apparitions that have been submitted for authoritative investigation. And 28 of those apparitions were judged positively by the local bishop's commission. And it's varying degrees, but uh, by the Vatican recognition, there's about 17 of those. And um, so the Vatican has given some form of recognition to four apparitions, which would be Our Lady of Fatima in Portugal in 1917. We'll talk about that. The Virgin with the Golden Heart in Belgium in 1932, the Virgin of the Poor in Belgium in 1933, and Mother of the World in Rwanda in 1981. And then there's six additional apparitions that have been investigated and approved by the local ordinary without having yet received formal recognition uh, from the Vatican. So that includes Our Lady of All Nations in Holland in 1945, Our Lady of Akita in Japan in 1973, our Lady of Reconciler of Peoples and Nations in Venezuela in 1976, Our Lady of Cuapa in Nicaragua in 1980, Our Lady of the Rosary in Argentina in 1983, and Our Lady Queen of the Rosary in Brazil in 1994. So there's been more than 100 claims of apparitions in the 20th century. Only the Our Lady of America apparitions in Ohio in the 1950s have received even an approval of faith expression. So very stringent, and I would just highly recommend anyone going to Google, YouTube, any of the Marian apparitions and go ahead and do your own research on them. And so, and just to touch briefly on some common themes of some apparitions of Mary when she's actually reported messages to people, uh, I'm not going to go into detail on each of them or give examples of each, but essentially their themes or messages include penance, gifts, such as the miraculous medal or the scapular, so necklaces, uh, conversion, conversion of sinners, peace in the world, silence, prayer, warnings, healings, sorrow, and a request to build a church as we have seen and talked about in the past. So now we're actually going to talk about specific Marian apparitions that have happened. Um, but really at first I want to just go back to scripture really quick. When we were talking about the Bible and her profound role in salvation history to her Magnificat, that God chose her from all eternity and out of free, her free will still gave her a chance to say no to this daunting task that Joseph could have left her um, and he plan did actually plan on leaving her, but she still said yes, even no matter what it would take, that she knew that God was faithful. And she is the best image of a Christian because she has had the most profound encounter and relationship with Jesus. 
her son that she gave birth to, raised and wa- walked all the way to the cross to, was there at the upper room with the um, disciples or the apostles, and they and her body and soul were assumed into heaven by the love of her son Jesus for her. Um, but if we go back to the first miracle that Jesus performed, it was at the wedding of Cana. Well, where did that happen? Because Mary requested it. And so all of these are just uh, any miracles that happen from these apparitions or any of these things. It's really an extension or a continuation of that first miracle that came from Mary's intercession. But Jesus or God is performing the miracle. So let's first start with Guadalupe, which includes today's feast day. So Our Lady of Guadalupe. So there's actually two apparitions of Our Lady of Guadalupe, um, and that that they're actually more than two centuries apart. Most people know Our Lady of Guadalupe by the second, the most recent one, but the first one actually happened in 1326 in Spain, uh, and Mary appeared to uh, a, a guy named Gil uh, Cordero as he searched for a lost cow. And Mary appeared and led him to a mound of stones where he saw his cow lying motionless as if dead. So Cordero was preparing to cut off its hide when it awoke. Mary told him to dig at, dig at the spot. And so skeptical at first, the authorities, of the local authorities, they dug to remove the stones and found a cave that contained a statue with an ancient document explaining its origin. It was famous uh, wonder-working statue that Pope Gregory the Great had sent to Spain in the 500s, a church and later basilica were built, helping to make the devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, one of the most popular in all of Spain, a favorite Marian title of Christopher Columbus, who dedicated an island he discovered to her patronage. Now, the more recent and the more famous uh, apparition that happened at Guadalupe happened in Mexico, and uh, Mary appeared to St. Juan Diego. And Juan Diego, actually in his uh, native, langu- native language, called Mary the one who crushes the serpent. And to the Spanish ear, that sounded like Guadalupe uh, and an already familiar name. So in December 1531, the Blessed Mother appeared several times on the Tepeyac Hill to Juan Diego. between uh, who And he lived between 1474 to 1548. And he was also a, an indigenous Mexican convert to Christianity. And Mary requested that a temple be built there built there in order to honor her son. And so Mary trying to comfort Juan Diego because out of his fear he was trying to persuade the bishop-elect in Mexico. Um, Mary said to, to him, Am I not here, I, who am your mother? Are you not under my shadow and protection? Are you not in the hollow of my mantle, the crossing of my arms? Am I not the source of all your joy? What more do you need? Let nothing else worry you, disturb you. And so uh, Juan Diego was trying to persuade the the bishop, and it wasn't happening. But in, until um, during an audience, the Juan Diego he opened up his tilma, which contained a Castilian roses blooming out of reason, out of season in winter, and was emblazoned with an image of the Mother of God in native garb. And so, just to recall, this happened in December of 1531, and his tilma was Juan Diego's tilma that this image appeared on is was made out of cactus fiber. Uh, it was a cloak made out of cactus fiber. And that usually would have decayed within decades. And guess what? That image is still on there today. So there's been numerous copies that have been made over the years uh, to try to match its beauty and simulate its preservation. 
One copy, created in 1789, was painted on a similar coarse fiber surface and placed in glass next to the tilma. It lasted only eight years before the heat and conditions caused it to be taken down due to the fading of its colors and fraying of its threads. And there's a uh, researcher and a physicist at the National University of Mexico that he said that he sees no explanation for how the tilma remained intact despite having been end quote, exposed for approximately 116 years without any kind of protection, receiving all the infrared and ultra ultraviolet radiation from the tens of thousands of candles near it and exposed to the humid and salty air around the temple, end quote. And even more than that, there was a worker in 1785 that accidentally spilled a nitric acid solution onto a large portion of the image, image while cleaning the frame. Uh, typically, that entire material would have been eaten away almost immediately, but the image completely remained in good condition. In 1921, an anti-Christian activist placed a dynamite in a rose display at the altar of the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And when the explosion went off, the marble of the altar and the floor were destroyed and the nearby metal crucifix mangled. But the image itself of uh, on that tilma remained completely intact. And so this image of Our Lady of Guadalupe on that tilma has become the most famous Marian image. And even myself and my girlfriend, that image means a ton. And it's, just go Google it, Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's a beautiful image. And so the image on the tilma is composed of pigments that have not been identified by chemical analysis as the product of animal, vegetable, or mineral dye. So there's not even an undersketch that has been identified below the, uh, below the painting. In, seven, in 1979, <clears throat> uh, there's a, a biologist and uh, also this person, Philip Cerna Callahan. He's the biologist and he's an author of 14 books and 200 scientific papers, was invited to conduct infrared uh, photographic tests on the tilma, and this is his quote. In terms of this infrared study, there is no way to explain either the kind of color pigments or the maintenance of color luminosity and brightness over the centuries. When consideration is given to the fact that there is no underdrawing, sizing, or over-varnish, and the weave of the fabric is, itself is utilized to give the portrait depth, no explanation of the portrait is possible by infrared techniques. It is remarkable that after more than four centuries, there is no fading or cracking of the original figure on any portion of the agave tilma which should have deteriorated centuries ago, end quote. And the image itself uh, has a ton of significance for both the natives and Spaniards that have encountered it. So um, a lot of people believe that there's a lot of symbolic meanings in it. Our Lady's pose, for example, she's standing in front of the rays of the sun and on top of the moon with the stars at her back on her mantle suggests that she is greater than the celestial bodies that she stands on which were divine personages for the Aztec people. However, the eyes of the image are downcast and the head bowed, suggesting that the woman is not a god herself, but standing humbly with hands in a prayerful posture before God, just like Mary. And even her feet are said by some to be in movement, portraying her as dancing in prayer. And because of her dark skin and hair, she is called La Morinita, which means the dark little one, allowing the indigenous people to see her as one of their own. She is wearing a maternity belt to indicate that she is pregnant, and on her stomach is a glyph, a four-petaled flower indicating north, south, east, and west, or God in his omnipresence. Although every other glyph is repeated on her dress, this the one on her belt is unique from any of the other designs in the image because as a result she can be understood to be the virgin mother of god 
So the study of the tilma by scientists and others have rendered some noteworthy discoveries. In 1981, there's a Peruvian ophthalmologist, uh, Jose uh, Aste Tonsman, published an analysis on, of high-resolution imaging that revealed in the pupils and corneas of the eyes of the Virgin on the tilma an image of 13 people whose appearance is, is consistent with the moment of the story when the saint reveals the image to the bishop-elect and his attendant, attendants. And on uh, and uh, further in 1981 at the observatory La Place in uh, Mexico City, um, there is a medical doctor and an amateur astronomer. They analyze the arrangement that appears in the mantle of the Virgin. So there's an arrangement of stars in the mantle, and they concluded that the stars were consistent with what astronomers believe what was actually in the sky above Mexico City on the day the apparition occurred. So in which it occurred on the winter morning solstice of December 12th, 1531 at 1026 a.m. So Our Lady of Guadalupe has transformed that entire place into believing in the one true God of Jesus Christ and Christianity as opposed to what it was before and their pagan beliefs. After she appeared, asked for a church to be built there, nine million baptisms in eight years, which means that there is roughly 3,082 baptisms every single day. So that is literally, you read in scripture, like, and 3,000 people were added to, they were sa 3,000 people were saved this day, or 3,000 people were added this day. That's exactly what was happening here every single day for nine years in Mexico City. And so now we want to move to Our Lady of Fatima. So Fatima is a city in Portugal, and in May of 1917, Mary appeared to three little children, um, and she consecutively appeared on the 13th day of five subsequent months after that in Fatima, Portugal. So these little children, they were tending sheep in the field, and one of the so one of the three is 10-year-old Lucia. Her cousins were Francisco, who was nine years old, and and Jacinta, who was seven years old, and they all saw Our Lady of the Rosary dressed in all white, more brilliant than the sun, shedding rays of light, clearer and stronger than a crystal glass filled with the most sparkling water and pierced by the burning rays of the sun. And so, in these visions, Mary asked the children to pray the rosary daily for the conversion of sinners. She asked for prayer, penance, and the consecration of Russia to her Immaculate Heart. On October 13th, the Virgin appeared to the children for the sixth time, the time with this time with St. Joseph, calling herself Our Lady of the Rosary. So, and then this is when the miracle of the sun happened, in which the sun danced in the sky and seemed to descend on the onlookers, drying the ground that had been covered with rain puddles that day. And then the sun went back to its proper place. Guess how many people were there? 70,000 people. 70,000. That is literally filling up Ford Field right now on a Sunday afternoon for a Lions football game. 70,000 people filled with believers, skeptics, atheists, other uh, religions. Everyone's coming to disprove these little children who say that the Blessed Mother keeps appearing to them. And so they come and they see 70,000 people see the sun move and dance in the sky. And then it comes straight to them at earth. But they don't get feel hot or anything like that. But as soon as the sun goes back to its proper place, all the sun was dried up on the sky or on the ground. And even witnesses that were even 40 miles away, they even reported seeing the sun dance, spin, and send out colored rays of light. So these are people that aren't even at, included in the 70,000 uh, in the, the, like the big crowd that was gathered there that day to watch it. 
And as foretold by Mary, the two younger children did not live very long. Bedridden, Francisco requested his first communion, and the following day on April 14, 1919, he ended up passing away. Jacinta, Jacinta, she died the following year after suffering a long illness, and at the age of 18, Lucia became a postulant at the convent of the Dorothean Sisters at Panavitra um, in Spain, where uh, the messages continued. So the Virgin Mary gave her the devotion of the five first Sundays of each month by going to confession and receiving Holy Communion to make reparation to the hearts of Jesus and Mary and that's something that I do which includes going to mass and going to confession on the first Friday and Saturday of each month consecutively and then in 1930 the um, bishop declared that the apparitions were worthy of belief and every single pope since then has recognized the miraculous nature of the events and has emphasized the importance of the messages of Fatima because it has been extremely prophetic especially in the consecration of Mary I, I probably won't I'm not going to get into it in this podcast, but I highly recommend anybody just going to do more and more research and reading up on all of these apparitions that we talk about today. But so Mary gave the children a secret in three parts. The first part of the secret was a vision of hell to these children. Um, uh, the secret was revealed that the tragic consequences of failure to repent and what awaits them in the invisible world if they are not converted. In the second part, she said, you have seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go to save them. God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my immaculate heart. Mary spoke of a war that will break out during the pontificate of Pius the, the 11th. So this was actually the course of World War II, which Sister Lucia reckoned as having been occasioned by the annexation of Austria by Germany during the reign of Pius XI. So very, very prophetic already. And Our Lady also said that this would happen after a night of the unknown light. And Sister Lucia, she pointed to January 25th, 1938, 1938, when Europe was witness to a spectacular nighttime display of light in the sky. And you can go look that up as well. But and then on May 13, 2000, with Lucia in attendance, Pope St. John Paul II revealed the third part of, this, of the secret as containing the image of a bishop in white being shot. So um, this man who actually shot Pope John Paul II in his assassination attempt in St. Peter's Square on May 13, 1981, which is actually also the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima, the Pope believed the secret applied to himself. He had the bullet that had pierced his body placed in the crown of the famed statue Our Lady of Fatima in Portugal. So Lucia agreed with the Pope's interpretation of the events. And the story is crazy. Like, even the night before Pope John Paul II was shot, he was in adoration looking at Jesus face to face in the Eucharist, which he would always be an hours and hours in front of the Lord. Um, he was literally, he was overheard speaking to Jesus. Why does this have to happen? He knew he was going to be shot that day because he had such a, um, intense relationship with Jesus. But anyways, that's a separate story, but that's just, just worthy of note. And there's many more apparitions that we could talk about and go into more detail, but even the ones that like Guadalupe and Fatima that I've talked about fairly significantly, I would highly recommend anyone going to read more about it. But there's three more that I want to talk about, and one one of them is Medjugorje, and the other two are Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal and Lord's France. The last two I have personal testimonies for, so stick around. But the Medjugorje, the apparitions that have happened there, they've really started happening in 1981 to six children um, that they allegedly had 
10 secrets promised to them. And so they were receiving daily visions in 1981 and then at a less frequent basis since 1989. And so all these apparitions are still like under investigation by the church. They have not made a definitive decision and they can't point to one thing or another. However, there has been some very uh, strong, um, I guess, pilgrimage or devotion and a ton of supernatural things that have happened there. So 30 million people have visited the site since the apparitions began and supporters of the apparitions hold up a ton of supernatural things that have happened, physical and spiritual healings, vocations, conversions, and more frequent reception of the sacraments as proof of authenticity. But regardless, the church still is trying to confirm very, uh, I think they're still just going to still go through their process because there's been so many visions that's hard to determine which ones were authentic and which ones were not. But clearly there are a lot of things happening there. And actually just Monday night at our encounter school, praying with a ton of people and literally receiving uh, words of knowledge or words of encouragement for every single person that walked by and just trying to speak whatever the Lord wants to say to them. And only one woman out of the entire group, I got a sense that Mary was with very profoundly. And I just said, Mary is overshadowing you. She goes, I just came back from Medjugorje. (laughs) So Mary is with her children and guiding everyone to her son, Jesus just as she has always done. So now I want to flip to Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal. So Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal, this apparition happened in Paris, France in 1830 to St. Catherine Labor. Uh, she is a novice in the order of the Sisters of Charity, and I was there this this past summer too. Before before I went on the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage hike uh, for two weeks, the week before, me and uh, three of my friends we were in Paris, La Sioux, and Lourdes, and each of those spots are significant. So Paris, we went to Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal, which we'll talk about now. And then we went to Lasso, which is St. Therese of Lasso, her hometown. Look her up, doctor of the church, died at the age of 24, incredible spirituality. And this she's a modern day saint as well. And then we went down to Lourdes, which is the last apparition that I'll talk about where I had my own personal encounter with Mary. But so Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal. So Mary appeared to St. Catherine in 1830. And she And the first time that this happened uh, was that St. Catherine, she was woken up and she was led by a shining child to the convent chapel. chapel, And there is, there standing there was the Blessed Virgin Mary. And Mary spoke for hours telling Catherine that she would have uh, to undertake a difficult task and prophesying the impending travails of France and of unspecified future mission. So on November 27th of 1830, Mary appeared in the same chapel in the form of a pic- of a picture standing on a globe with shafts of light steaming from her hands surrounded by the words, um, obviously in French, but it says, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. On the reverse side, it was a capital M with a cross above it and two hearts, one thorn crowned and one pierced with a sword. And both of those are resembling of one with the crown is Jesus's sacred heart and the one with pierced sword is Mary's immaculate heart, right? Because remember back in Luke 2.35, the Simeon tells, prophesies to her that a sword, a sword will also pierce your soul also. And that was uh, fulfilled when Jesus's heart was pierced on the cross and Mary suffered with him uh, in that way. And 
So uh, Mary told St. Catherine to make a medal struck after that image that she saw that I just described to you. And that is what is known as the miraculous medal. So it's a necklace now. And, sh- and Mary said that graces will abound for persons who wear it with confidence. And so people that wear it with faith, God will pour his graces upon. And I have seen the fruit of that. Um, already but and I'll, and I'll share that in a second but even there as we're at that church so saint catherine's body is there incorruptible so she this was in the 1800s right so her body has been there for about 150 plus years and her body is there and it looks completely healthy you could see her body in a like a glass um uh tomb or whatever you want to say off to the side of the altar and there's also another saint there but i forget who it was but both bodies were incorruptible and what makes St. Catherine's body of being incorrupt even more impressive than it already is, is when they are going through the process of their investigation to be canonizing her as a saint, when they found her body in perfect condition, even though the coffin that she was in, the coffin that she was in was severely damaged by moisture, but yet the body of the saint was in perfect condition. And the presence there was really heavy. And actually my girlfriend, uh, right before mass, had a really, really strong encounter with Mary. And I'm gonna let her keep that to herself on the specifics of it, but she had a very strong encounter with Mary there. And and also the miraculous medal, I hand out a lot of those medals. I go to St. Paul Street Evangelization, buy some Benedictine crucifixes and these miraculous medals and buy some chains, put them together. And then I, when I pray with people or just seeing people uh, throughout the day, hand these out to people. And actually, uh, for Young Catholic Professionals, we were at a restaurant in downtown Detroit. And one of the waitresses told my friend Leah that she really liked her necklace and it was the miraculous metal necklace. So we came back and to give her her own and we get these blessed too by the priest as well. But we wanted to give her her own. So we go back, she remembered Leah's, uh, Leah and her necklace and so we give her a necklace. She puts it on and we leave. And then we're like, oh, should we should go back and get a picture. So we go back and she was like, guys, my hip has been killing me and there's been back pain shooting up and it's been shooting up uh, pain through my back. And as soon as I put the necklace on, it was gone. I feel like dancing. So literally God uses sacramentals sometimes to, to work his power through. Not all the time. It's not superstition. It is literally out of faith in Jesus um, that uh, God sometimes pours his graces on. So just uh, a testimony there. And now I want to talk about Lord's France. So this was the last place in France that we stopped at before our uh, backpacking pilgrimage in Spain. And this is where I had my personal encounter with Mary that I'll never forget in my entire life. And so this entire story happened back in 1858. On February 11th, she appeared for the first time to St. Bernadette. So little Bernadette, she was... 14 years old, and she was from a very poor family. And so that first time that Mary appeared to her, St. Bernadette had no idea who it was. That She just knew that there was this beautiful woman, and she described it as that she, this woman was in a golden cloud, and this woman prayed a rosary in her presence at the grotto in, in Lourdes, France. And so um, after this incident happened, she had a sister, Marie, and Marie went and told their mother about the incident, and her mom did not allow Bernadette to return to the grotto. And a few days later, Bernadette and her sisters finally uh, persuaded their mom to let them return to the grotto. And then once they were there, 
there again was the woman. So during a third vision, when the girl was uh, accompanied by two um, women that had a kind of this influence in the town, the, the woman asked her to come to the site. So the woman, when I say woman, it's Mary, but she didn't know her as Mary yet. She just knew her as this beautiful woman that would appear to her. So the woman asked Bernadette to come to the site another 15 times and promised her happiness, not in this world, but in the next. So then large crowds of people started going to the grottos with Bernadette at Future Visions, and um, including a uh, doctor, the most prominent doctor there. His name was Pierre Romain de Zeus, and who and he evaluated um, Bernadette and announced that there was no indication of nervous excitement. In a subsequent test, he put her hand through the flame of a candle during her time where she was on her knees and saying that she could see the blessed or this woman, and she and Bernadette had no pain and she was not burned at all from this uh this flame uh, on the candle and then on february 25th mary told bernadette to dig in the mud and so after digging in the mud and literally to everybody else it looked crazy um she was digging in the mud and there was uh, which was revealed that an underground water source that became a place of healing so, and then there the woman identified herself on the Feast of the Annunciation. So the Annunciation is when Jesus was incarnated in Mary's womb, when the angel Gabriel uh, told Mary that she was going to give birth to the Son of the Most High. And she responded that, let it be done to me according to thy word. And uh, so that was on the Feast of the Annunciation. And the woman uh, finally identified herself as the Immaculate Conception. And it was with this identification that the parish priest began to believe in the authenticity of the visions because Bernadette had no idea even what that meant. And she looked pretty, pretty crazy, but she was completely normal. She was a normal child. And, um, and then from the fruit of this where that actually happened too, that I'll explain in a little bit. And then, uh, subsequent visions after that, Bernadette was asked to kiss the ground on behalf of sinners to tell the clergy that they should build a chapel at the grotto and go and instruct the people that they should come in procession to the chapel. So after the apparitions came to an end on July 16th, Bernadette went to study at a hospice run by the sisters of Nevers. And eight years later, she left Lourdes for the last time to join the sisters. She was given the name Sister Mary Bernard and worked there as sacristan, avoiding publicity as best she could. She referred to herself as a broom, which Our Lady used, but now I have been put back in my corner. <laughs> and then in 1862, the bishop uh, confirmed that it was authentic. And then on 1876, the Basilica at Lourdes was consecrated and the liturgical feast of Our Lady of Lourdes was established for February 11th. And then in 1879, Bernadette died at age 35, and she is uh, buried in Nevers, where her body lies and corrupt, just like St. Catherine Labor. And now, so where that basilica is at, at Lourdes, it's this huge, gorgeous church, and I highly recommend anybody and everybody trying to make it to Lourdes in their lifetime. It is an incredible experience. But uh, so the fruits of the, all of this happening, so all of a sudden this miracle water that would be for healing that uh, Bernadette was basically was digging into the mud and it was revealed that there was healing water. The first healing that happened was a man that was, that was blind. He went to, went to wipe his face with this water. His eyes were completely opened, healed. 
And since that time, there's been over 7,000 miracles that have happened. So just as the church always does and what we've been talking about apparitions, same with miracles that happen. They go through an extensive investigative process to confirm it. So in order to confirm it, they go through certain criteria. So the person had to have had uh, illness or an ailment that was incurable. Um, it was lethal to them and they were cured instantaneously. So out of the 7,000, they have identified 69 to meet those criteria where there is no scientific explanation. And actually there's doctors on site there. So the way it's set up now, and not only are there doctors on site there, but also they leave every single case of healing open for any doctor in the entire world to come in and look at it themselves or challenge it or whatever they want to do. And so the way that this that Lords is set up, it's this beautiful town. Um, it's really touristy now, given that there's this uh, pilgrimage attraction to it. People from literally all over the world come, and almost everybody is coming with a burden or Ill illness or sickness or for somebody else there. And so it's a town. There's a river running through it. The huge, gorgeous basilica. And when you pass the basilica, and the rivers on your right, the basilicas on your left. Right on the side of the basilicas where the grotto's at, where Mary appeared. And there's water trickling down the rocks right there. And um, and you can run your hand across it. And, uh, and then there's baths. So that water that they don't know where the source is from, the water is um, tr like channeled down to almost it looks like a locker room now. One guy, one side for the guys, one side for the women, and um, and there's long lines all day long because the hospital brings down patients. I think basically all day, and then like I said, there's millions of people that go there every single year hoping to be healed. And so lines are super long, and when you get dunked in that water, it is chilly. It takes your breath away. And actually, while we were there, Napoli met a woman. So Mary, so we're in line, separated, but this is a story that uh, Napoli came out with. She was in line and started talking to these women and asking, like, what are, you, what are you here for? What's your intention? Well, one woman said that she's been coming back, I believe, for 23 years in Thanksgiving. In Thanksgiving, because 24 years ago, she was completely healed of, a, of brain cancer. She said when she got dunked in the water, it takes her breath away. It's super cold. The water got extremely hot, and she yelled because it got so hot. And so they went, did medical investigation and everything, and she completely cured of brain cancer 23, 24 years ago, and she comes back every year in Thanksgiving. Uh, absolutely incredible. And so this is my story. So when we went to France, we were in Paris, and then Lisieux, and then we went to Lourdes, right before going to Spain on the Camino de Santiago. And when we got to Lourdes, it was our very first day, and my primary intention on this entire pilgrimage was I was discerning the priesthood. So um, the Lord was starting to reveal that I was called to marriage, but I just kept pushing it off because this was like on my heart and thought the Lord was calling me to be a priest and I just wanted clarity and just begging Mary to also pray for me that I have the strength to say yes, like she did, you know, to her vocation. And so while we're at Lord's, our very first day walking into the sanctuary, I'm goofing around, I'm laughing, I'm like basically being a tourist and I have my, my phone out, I'm taking a video 
and I I have this video and like right at the end it's facing towards the grotto. We just uh, like we're right in front of the front side kind of of the basilica and you can see the grotto and I have this video going and then as soon as I stop the video I make eye contact of where Mary appeared at the grotto and I just became extremely and unexplainably overwhelmed like I just started crying for for basically no reason and I became abundantly aware and to a complete realization of Mary as my loving mother and I became aware of the power of her prayers and the power of her intercession and I knew at that moment that I was her son and I belonged to her <laughs> and so I'm crying, looking like a baby now for no reason. I still can't comprehend what is going on. There's a super long line of people trying to go to the grotto. So this is separate from the like the lockers of or like the the baths of where people are getting dunked in the in the water. But there's water trickling down these rocks of where Mary appeared. And so there's a long line and I'm just trying to process and what is even happening with my emotions right now. <laughs> and when we get up to the rocks, I placed my hand on the rocks and that's where the water is trickling down. And as soon as I placed my hand on that rock and I felt the water, I heard her say, it was abundantly clear. I heard Mary ask me or tell me, ask me anything that is on your heart, my son. And I was praying a novena for uh, just a breakthrough and miracles and healings and praying with people and all the, all these things. And that went straight out the window. I was so overwhelmed with emotion. I wanted to pray for my family, my friends, and all, and all the people on my heart, you know. So I was praying for each woman in my family and, the, and for the conversion of my family. And she said two things. It is all taken care of by my son and in his hands. And then I asked for the conversion of specific people. And then she said, love them, pray the rosary for their conversion. And then at one point I asked for uh, that breakthrough and healing and miracles and the middle of my palms got extremely hot. And on that, on that pilgrimage, we did see a ton of breakthroughs and healing. And then my primary intention to go on this entire trip was my vocation. I thought I was being called to the priesthood. And so I, I literally like, I was like, mom, I'm so sorry, but what about my vocation? And she said, trust in the revelations and the feeling of your heart. And yeah, I won't go any further, but, but I knew exactly what she meant and who she was pointing me to. Um, and then I started praying since that my vocation was revealed even abundantly clear. And also I accepted it that peace that I felt in that moment was a peace that I've never felt in my entire life. And so then I prayed for my future wife and my future kids and the strength for myself to be a better man. And she revealed her love for me as my mother since I was little and that she's all, she's always been there and she's never left me. She took me back to that. And then I asked for purity in my heart for my future wife and for my future kids. And this is the climax of my encounter with Mary. My heart got extremely hot and my entire chest got warm, but the, like the center of it was my heart. And then with my eyes closed, I got this image of a white blossoming rose for purity. And I heard her tell me, my son has made you pure. So then I prayed for um, certain other intentions and it was pray the rosary and trust in my immaculate heart. And then I asked her, um, 
Mary, I want to grow deeper with you and your son and uh, for a deeper relationship with your son. And she said, call on my name, my son, especially in times when you feel distant from God. His love will always return to you through me. And so after being completely overwhelmed by all of this, it was literally a dialogue, guys. It wasn't like I said something and then I waited for a few minutes. I'm like, oh, I'm getting the sense that she's saying this. No, it was boom, boom, boom. It was a conversation with Mary. And I sat back completely overwhelmed, crying even more (laughs) now. And I just sat back and I heard her say, hold out your hand and hold mine. So I held out my hand. (laughs) <laughs> and I felt her presence even more. And it was the most, probably one of the most beautiful encounters I've ever had. And that was the first time that I felt like I could hear anybody's voice really clear. And then after just growing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and hearing God's voice for myself and for other people, um, there's been a ton of breakthroughs in that. But actually, after my experience a few weeks ago that I shared on here of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, I actually felt like I I was doubting that I could hear his voice as much anymore. And uh, I was at adoration last week and was sitting there praying. And I was like, Lord, like, why isn't it clear that what you're telling me, you know, like it used to be just so clear, like he would like just tell me all these things or scripture would just pop out at me and wasn't feeling like any of that, you know. So I turned to Mary. I said, Mary, you told me at Lord's that whenever I don't feel God's presence to turn to you. And I literally heard her say, try again. <laughs> so I looked directly back at Jesus in the Eucharist and literally I got my note, my notebook out and this and or, uh, these note cards out and my pen and literally just started writing down everything I heard because it came rapid fire, rapid fire. And then I went back and I read the same mass readings that I read the night before and it just looked completely different like everything was just like popping out like boom 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 so it was already just I mean that was a tangible example of a thing that it confirms one my encounter with Mary and two her loving mother embrace always pointing me to her son Jesus and I pray the rosary every single day because who knows Jesus from a who what human that is a saint, a glorified saint, who knows Jesus better than her? Nobody. <laughs> so I'm asking Mary every single day, teach me to know Jesus as you did, please. And so, um, and after that encounter with with Mary, she has just been a an integral part of my daily life. She points me to her son every single day. She has been She's the patroness. She's our go-to for me and my relationship with my girlfriend. And it is just absolutely incredible. And I cannot tell you enough the, the peace that anybody can feel by turning to her as your mother for her intercession. She's always going to point you to her son. Always, 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 always. And then uh, after, so other than all the apparitions and everything that we've talked about today, I also just wanted to share just really quickly, these saints and the mystics, go look them up. They've all had a huge devotion to Mary. They've had encounters with Mary. They had apparitions from Mary. Blessed Solanus Casey, our own beatified, soon-to-be saint, God willing, right here in Detroit, Mary told him when he was discerning which order he should join and he became a Capuchin friar here in Detroit. I believe is in either Indiana or Ohio. And Mary said, go to Detroit. (laughs) 
and he went to Detroit and literally like he's on his way to be a canonized saint in the church through miracles that happen in him. And even uh, just from an ordinary perspective outside of myself and other people that I've talked about, we at our Young Catholic Professionals event, we had one of our board members, he gave a speech. He converted to the Catholic Church. Um, he had he has a family of eight, five adopted, three of their own, and him and his wife um, lost, I believe, three or four of these children. And their first child that they lost, they were completely devastated. And they were in a Protestant church. They were actually an evangelical church. So as they described it, their church had the resurrection, but they did not have the cross. So everything is supposed to be perfect. And now something horrible happened. A son that they lost at a really young age, and they felt alone. They felt lost because their church told them that everything is golden. Everything is this resurrection. They didn't have the cross. And so when his wife was sitting in the living room, some, he said that they would just sit there in the living room just like blank staring because they didn't even know what to do anymore. And when his wife was in the living room one day, she will, t- she, he, she will tell you this to this day, that Mary appeared to her and told her that she knows what it's like to lose a son and then taught her about redemptive suffering and <laughs> basically told her to become Catholic become Catholic. We have this beautiful theology of it's a both and. We have the cross and the resurrection. We are the resurrection people. Amen to that. But there is no resurrection Sunday without Good Friday when Jesus told us to take up our cross and to follow him too. This life is not easy and it's not promised by anybody that it's going to be easy, even the followers of Jesus himself. So, Mary is just always pointing you closer to her son, Jesus. You will never have a relationship with Mary outside of the context of the will of God because Mary doesn't want anything other than God's will to be done. She is the human image, the perfected human image that is completely abandoned and formed to God's will. And I cannot recommend enough just... I know there's, I you hear uh, people that are converts be, and their biggest hangup was always Mary. Protestant pastors even have had direct breakthroughs from finally praying to Mary. And one Protestant pastor put his story like this. There was very, something very specific that was nearly impossible that he knew needed to get done, but it was going to be nearly impossible. So as a Protestant, and I believe he is a Protestant pastor too, he said, Mary, I have no idea if I'm even supposed to be talking to you right now. And God, please forgive me. I beg you to forgive me if this is wrong. Mary, if you are who these Catholics say you are, I need you to, I need you to make this prayer happen and to be fulfilled. And guess what? <laughs> That impossible prayer came through because Mary is the undoer of knots. That knot that Eve got us into, Mary is getting us out of because of the merits of her son, Jesus. And it's just so incredible. When you, and 
uh, there's so many other stories, but you can literally just go search for them. There's regular people that were so scared to pray for Mary's intercession, and then there would be a miracle happening. Uh, uh, a kid in, in the burn unit with burns on their body, the, Prote- the Protestant would be finally, Mary, if you are who these Catholics say you are, heal this child. They go down to the hospital on that floor. Where is this? Where's he at? They're thinking he passed away. Kids, on, kids in the toy room. Completely healed. Skin is completely healed. It is God performing these miracles through the most righteous of human beings' prayers. (laughs) Mary, the mother of God, our mother that Jesus gave us to, and the perfect image of what how Jesus wants his church, undefiled, without blemish, perfected in God's will, striving for righteousness, abandoned to to whatever uh, God wants to do in their life, risking it all, and being this humble servant, this handmaid of the Lord, the lowly handmaid, <laughs> and to strive for this relationship that Mary had, the most profound relationship with Jesus. And trust me, Jesus wants to give you that relationship. And guess what? <laughs> Mary wants to give you that relationship too. So ask the Blessed Mother. And just like as that Protestant pastor dude did, if you don't feel comfortable, say, God, please forgive me if this is wrong. And Mary, if I don't even know if I'm supposed to be doing this right now, but X, Y, and Z. And she is going to point you to her son, Jesus. And I'll be praying that for all of you, that you just dive deeper and deeper in love with Jesus and come into the fullness of truth. And and the, to end this entire episode, let's just say a Hail Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Mother of God, lead all of us to your Son, Jesus. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, happy feast day. God bless.